Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Kyle Lowerson about a green alga called Chlamydomonas that he's worked with a lot in the past. Now that he has started his own lab, Kyle has branched out into working with other algae, one group which is the same red algae that I work with. So we discussed these organisms as well. Kyle does a fantastic job explaining some of the current and future applications of genetic engineering in algae. And the key word here is applications. The work on algae enters the realm of applied research, which directly addresses solutions to existing problems. This is different from basic research, which is what I do and what has been discussed more on this podcast so far. In basic research, we aim to understand how something works in nature. Basic and applied research are not contrasting. They go hand in hand, and the things we learn from doing basic research lay the foundation for applied research projects, which Kyle and I discussed in depth today. So I'm excited to put out an episode showing how algae can be used to solve human problems. For more information about microbes or the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here with Dr. Kyle Lowerson, who is an assistant professor at King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia. Hi, Kyle. How's it going? Hey, it's going well, thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you. First, could you give a brief summary of your background and some of the work that you're currently doing? Sure. I did my Bachelor's of Science in Queen's University in, in Kingston, Ontario. I also did a Bachelor of Education and Master's there. And then in 2011, I was lucky enough to win a scholarship to move to Germany for my PhD, which I did at the Center for Biotechnology in Bielefeld. Uh, there's a beautiful institute there, the Center for Biotechnology in Bielefeld University. And about three years into my PhD, I stumbled across this idea that we could spread introns through our transgenes because we kind of met at the intersection between the lowering cost of DNA synthesis and our creativity in silico. And uh, we were able to show that by spreading introns throughout these transgenes, we could match the host regulation machinery and sort of turn on transgene expression. So that happened all right at the end of my PhD, and it stimulated me to stay at the same lab that I did my PhD for a postdoc. And it ended up staying for another five years uh, until 2019 in Bielefeld as a postdoc in the group of Professor Dr. Olaf Kruse. And then I was fortunate enough to get awarded a faculty position here at KAUST. And I moved here in August 2019. Cool. That's a big move. I've, I have questions about that at the end, maybe, if we have time. Sure. It was also a big move to go from Canada to Germany for a PhD. So, totally, I mean, totally. I was already prepped for it. Yeah, that makes sense. I know that we have a lot we're probably going to cover today, but which organism are we going to use to like kick this all off? Well, I think we're going to get started with Chlamydomonas. It's been a model organism since the 1940s and it has been our workhorse or my workhorse through my career. Excellent. And so Chlamydomonas is a green alga chlorophyte, I believe. 
can you just describe what it looks like and where it's found? So I was once told by a reviewer that chlorophyte is a type of rock. And huh? so it, <laughs> I, I had to correct my sentence in my paper to say that Chlamydomonas is a member of the Chlorophyceae. Sure, sure. And it, so I, it's a Chlorophyceaean alga. So Chlamydomonas is a single-celled green alga. It has one very large chloroplast that takes up about 60% of its cell. It has a central nucleus and then a mitochondrial reticular network that surrounds the chloroplast in certain growth conditions but can move around and uh, change its position based on the carbon source that the alga uses. It has been found all over the world in many different environments, but it's thought to actually be native to uh, soil. So it's mm -hmm. a soil alga by nature, at least that's what's best known right now. But it's been isolated. For example, there are stories in the Chlamydomonas source book of opening uh, an agar plate on an airplane and isolating Chlamydomonas from huh. the air in an airplane. And it, it's really isolated all over the world. But in general, it's considered a soil alga. Cool. I, that's That's really interesting. I know there's also some isolates from under glaciers and in the Arctic, which I think is really cool. Chlamydomonas is a large group of species mm -hmm. within the genus Chlamydomonas. There are a lot of members. So the ones that are found, for example, on snow are usually Chlamydomonas nivalis, which are the, the snow algae that turn pink. It's a very broad genus of green algae. Sure. You mentioned that it's a well-known model. Could you talk a little bit about what makes something a model system, and then what kind of work you've done with it as a model? Chlamydomonas is a fantastic model because it grows really well with very little maintenance. So compared to other model species or species that may require quite some presence or quite some infrastructure around it, Chlamydomonas grows at room temperature with pretty much any fluorescent or LED bulb you can shine on it. And a simple mineral salt solution, the most common one is called trisacetate phosphate medium, which is uh, very little inputs actually to get your cells to grow. And your cells will grow to stationary phase in about 72 hours. Stationary phase is when the rate of growth of your cells is equal to the rate of death. So before stationary phase, you have your cells just starting to grow, then you have exponential phase where they're growing, 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 and then eventually you have this culture where your cells are in a state of both growing and dying, kind of stable. It's a, it's a healthy, dense culture is what he's saying. So as far as one can track a model microbe, especially a photosynthetic microbe, it is easy to handle. It's very relatively fast growing and it's just simple from a, from a maintenance point of view, which makes it very easy to work with. It's also amenable to growth in liquid and on agar plates, which means that you can streak it, you can keep it for longer periods of time. You can transform it and recover colonies on the agar plate, which is also very important for doing genetic engineering studies and just general experimentation with the genetics of Chlamydomonas. And uh, throughout the last, I guess, even 50 years, uh, 40 years maybe, there have been a lot of work in terms of generating knockout lines with chlamydomonas. So it started as a single isolate in about 1940. And through time, there have been many different strains derived from that original isolate through chemical and UV mutagenesis. So you have strains that have lost the cell wall. You have strains that no longer grow in nitrate. You have various 
oxytrophies that have been developed from those type strains and then have been propagated for many, many years now in the lab. And so uh, if it's, it has a sort of an array of different physical fe- features that you can then choose which one you want to work with when you're talking about genetic engineering of that organism or just doing any kind of analysis uh, in the lab. That's really exciting. So you could basically take your pick of all these different mutants, or you said oxytrophs, and to people listening, oxytrophs are... So an oxytroph would be something that can no longer grow without the addition of something. So for example, there's an arginine oxytrophic strain, which cannot grow unless you feed it extra arginine, or um, a thiamine oxytrophic strain for the same purpose. What that allows you to do, and in the early days of genetics, what it allowed um, researchers to do would be when you could fractionate the entire genome and stick it into a bacterial artificial chromosome library, a back library, you could have a large chunk of that genome, which would have the gene that's been knocked out for that oxytrophy and use it as a selectable marker. So you could transform it back into the genome, put that essentially chunk of chromosome back in, and then recover growth on uh, medium without oxy- without arginine, for example, and that would allow you to generate colonies and test integration frequencies or crossover frequencies or position in the genome on different chromosomes back in sort of pre-sequencing technologies. So what you're saying is that this this whole system, the chlamydomonas system, it's been pretty well mapped, and now we can use it to do a million different things. So like a lot of organisms, like a lot of the organisms I've discussed on previous podcast episodes are more rare or obscure organisms. Maybe their genomes haven't even been sequenced. Like this, this organism has become such a good model that, and it's been studied in such depth that now you can just take it and run with it in different types of applied studies. What's one example of an application that maybe you've worked on or that you're excited about? It, it's hard to nail down. I mean, I could sit here for five hours and tell you about all of the different ways in which Chlamydomonas is used as a model, right? And yeah. it's such a powerful organism because of several features that, that just make it better than any other alga for being a model. One is that it has flagella. Flagella are tiny hair-like appendages that kind of dangle off the outside of a cell and can help it in movement. Think of the flagellum on like a sperm cell and how it helps the cell swim towards an egg. And those flagella are part of its sexual mating cycles and its motility. So not only can you use it to cross two strains together if they're opposite mating types, but you can use it as part of a motility study. So making a swimmer that can then uh, do phototrophism towards a light source. And that's been used to identify different aspects of light uh, induced signaling in the cell. You have all kinds of examples of using chlamydomonas as a model for photosynthetic studies, so Mm -hmm. uh, understanding higher plant photosynthesis because they're very similar in terms of evolutionary structure. I mean, chlamydomonas and plants have been evolving separately for quite some time, but they do share a lot of features between the green algae and the viridae plantae in general. I mean, green algae are part of the viridae plantae, but uh, higher plants share a lot of structures in their photosystems with chlamydomonas. Now, what 
makes chlamydomonas great for photosynthetic studies and has made it a powerful model is that you can recover it heterotrophically on acetic acid as a carbon source. And that means you can completely knock out things in photosynthesis, make the cell not able to do photosynthesis, but it's still able to come back as a transformant or a mutant. And that means that you can understand, okay, well, we have everything except for whatever was knocked out. What is going wrong now in photosynthesis that makes the cell not work? And that's allowed people to understand intimately details about photosystems and structures in photosynthetic machinery that allow plants and algae to grow. So there's there's a million different things that you can do with chlamydomonas in terms of uh, what you can do with it as a model organism. And I came into my work in my PhD I have sort of a practical mentality to the work that I do. I want to see a result directly from something I'm trying to do. And I kept reading papers that said, algae are interesting organisms for biotechnology. If only somebody could engineer the cell to produce something. And I started asking myself, well, why aren't we engineering it to produce anything? What, what's the limitation there? So the first efforts I went after were relatively simple. Uh, they were secreting recombinant proteins from chlamydomonas. And that worked more or less well with the tools that were available in 2011. So at that point, you could have some reporters expressed. DNA synthesis was becoming a reality. So people were code on optimizing genes to work with the genome. People were trying to get luciferases, green fluorescent protein to express. And that had been shown from you know, 1998 until 2010. That had been shown relatively well. Um, and so we tried starting to express recombinant proteins and secrete them. And, and we got some results and we started to use things like luciferases to identify high expressing transformants and then isolate them and characterize their growth behaviors. What we ended up finding out is that the fact that the cell was, we were working with one of these strains that we talked about that had been developed that had no cell wall. And what we learned is that, you know, that cell wall was still produced. It just wasn't stuck to the cell anymore. So now all of a sudden you have a sticky protein matrix cell wall floating around your culture medium. And if you're trying to secrete a recombinant protein, it's very difficult to then concentrate that down and separate your target protein from the cell wall, which is designed to adhere to itself and everything else. So we learned that maybe the chlamydomonas wasn't the best organism in the world to use for secreting a recombinant target protein and and then trying to purify it. It does work really well if you can use it as a you know complete slurry of proteins or for a catalytic activity as the culture is growing in, in the liquid medium around it. But yeah, that's that's how we got started using the model system in biotechnology, in algal biotechnology. And I must say at that point, you know, I was standing on the shoulders of giants. There had been people working on engineering chlamydomonas for 20 years at that point that had given us a lot of insights that uh, we then used to start designing more synthetic biology-based tools for the organism. That's a, that's an interesting history. I know that cell walls can make things kind of difficult. Could you just define what a recombinant protein is? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So every organism in the world that's alive is partly protein. Proteins make up the structural elements, the catalytic elements that make our cells work, in addition to things like cell membranes and lipids. They're, they're part of the essential molecules that make up a living system. And so if you have a cell like a green alga, it is really good at turning light and carbon dioxide into its biomass. But it's not really good at doing much else. And so when we look at the cell, we look at it as a vehicle 
in which we can maybe produce something from light and carbon dioxide and you know some nitrogen and phosphorus. So the goal is to take a target protein that has an effect of some kind from any organism that might be producing it and take the genetic code that codes for that protein and put it into our alga so that we can then have an alga that's producing whatever that active ingredient is. So uh, the example I used of secreting recombinant protein, we were looking at taking an ice binding protein from plants. And so plants that have to deal with freezing and thawing make these proteins called ice binding proteins that bind into ice crystals and limit their growth. So, you know, you'll get crystal freezing, but they won't form kind of big blocks of ice inside the plant cell. And that helps the plant freeze and thaw and survive. Well, it turns out you can also put those proteins in ice cream and it prevents freezer burn. <laughs> and so the idea was, could we make an algal produced ice binding protein that might be able to be used in frozen foods as a protective agent? And so that's what we were trying to do with that recombinant protein and it is sort of an example of what one does with recombinant protein technology. Cool. That was a good explanation. That, that example makes me think about how I think some people get a little freaked out about the ideas of genetic engineering. And I know there's obviously a lot of ethics to be debated when talking about that kind of science. But I do want to say, I know a bunch about ice-binding proteins, and they often are acquired by algae naturally in nature. I think the polar chlamydomonas has like a horizontally acquired one from bacteria, maybe, or fungi or something. But anyway, organisms also get these proteins naturally. So, you, you know, you could argue that it's not so freaky and sci-fi to, I guess, create and express one in an alga because it often does happen in nature on its own. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ice binding proteins are such a fascinating class of proteins. I did my master's on ice binding oh, proteins, really? which is, you know, kind of my, <laughs> kind of my, uh, um, historical nerd topic because I always come back to it uh, in whatever I'm doing because I like I love it so much. Like, uh, so I, I like worked with <laughs> uh, pr yeah Professor Virginia Walker at Queen's University. That's where I got the idea because we had been expressing this protein in E. coli and then moved over to Chlamydomonas when I was in Germany. But to your point, in nature, there's so many examples of DNA transfer between organisms, yes. and it happens in many different ways for many different forms. It's hard to date one example because there are so many and we're learning so much more about how DNA is transferred between organisms. There was a paper just this week about a new way that transposable elements transfer between algae in the, in the sea, right? And yes, that, I saw that paper. <laughs> that ex yeah, exactly. So uh, almost every example of can we put a gene into another organism, there's a natural example where it's already happening in nature. You yes. Know, uh, all of the technology used to make engineered plants at the moment comes from a soil bacterium, which naturally puts its DNA into plants and creates a little home for itself, the agrobacterium tumefaciens, right? And we've just taken the, the part that makes it bad for the plant out and then put our own genes in so that we can manipulate plants that way. So a lot of organisms take up DNA from their natural environment. And uh, to your point about ice binding proteins in Arctic algae, later we're going, going to discuss the cyanidiales and they have a, about 1% of their genome of hor horizontally transferred uh, traits from bacteria and other species that allow them to survive in the extreme environments that they do, right? So it's kind of like, hey, the genetic code's there 
whatever helps us survive, we're going to take up and make use of it, right? And then as long as our um, genetic code is able to understand it, that's really the limiting factor for how DNA can transfer between organisms in nature. Turns out that Chlamydomonas has an incredibly difficult to engineer genetic code or genetic ar architecture. And it has to do with viral defense mechanism mm -hmm. where it prevents genes that come into it from being expressed. So Chlamydomonas is really good at taking in foreign DNA. It does that very efficiently. It will take DNA from anywhere and it will put it into its chromosome. But what it naturally does is actually turn it off right away. It folds up the genes around it with what's called heterochromatin. And so it's only through the development of what we call domesticated strains that have been mutated enough that have this feature knocked out that they're able to be really engineered in sort of a mature way that allows us to do fun things with them now, like all of the genetic engineering studies and metabolic engineering that we do. Hmm. I, we're we're going to tie this all together. I yeah. was going to, when you brought up the cyanidiales, I was going to talk about that, but that's what I'm actually do my dissertation on and the horizontal gene transfer. But in chlamydomonas, if its viral defense mechanism is stopping it from expressing foreign DNA that's been integrated, that's really interesting. And I think that gives a clue about maybe one of the mediators of transfer that was like big in that lineage, which is interesting because because we've been in a project we're working on now, we've been like, it's probably not viruses, even though I think it, I mean, it's many things can transfer DNA, but um, it seems like for some reason in the evolutionary history of chlamydomonas, it's it's needed to really protect itself from viral DNA transfer. So that that's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, there are viruses that infect chlorella strains, which look the same as chlamydomonas. They're green single-celled microbes, but seem to have a vastly different genetic and evolutionary history, even though they're sort of from the same lineage, you know, evolutionary path that one would say, oh, that's a green alga, that's a green alga. They both grow under my swimming pool if I don't clean it. But, you know, they have completely different responses to foreign DNA. Yeah, we talk a lot in our lab about like cryptic diversity. There's so many little green balls, little green al algae out there that you look at under the microscope, you probably couldn't tell them apart. And and yet their their genomes are so different and their lifestyles are so different. Although I will say because of the flagella you mentioned, chlamydomonas, I mean, I see a lot of cartoons now. So I have this silly uh, picture of chlamydomonas in my head where it's this ball with like two little uh, bunny ear flagella sticking off of it. It looks almost like a little bug or something. Um, but that is kind of what it looks like under the microscope. So little green ball with some long it. hairs yeah. hanging off of it. <laughs> yeah, they have these little swimming flagella, and yeah. as long as you can uh, catch it when it's not super active, then that's exactly what they look like, little bunnies upside down. And you have to usually drop some iodine on them to get them to stop moving around. I, I found a really big yeah. colony under the microscope once, and they were just, they were mo they were all stuck together, but they were trying to move, and they were some were spinning and some were bumping into other ones, and it was pretty fun to to video and to watch. Fun fact, they do that when they're stressed. Oh, they well, tend to clump together like that. Yeah. It's that, a, it's surprising. a protective mechanism <laughs> to keep them alive. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they were stressed under squished under my, uh, cover slip between my cover slip and my microscope slide. That probably wasn't it's optimal really conditions. 
once your liquid culture starts looking like that and getting clumpy, it's really hard to get it back. You usually have to go to a fresh one from a plate too. They're, they're really finicky, but the strain that we work with, it's called UVM4. It was developed by, uh, Juliana Neuprit and, um, Ralph Box lab in 2009 was the original publication and uh, UVM4 has no cell wall and no flagella. So it's actually really more just like a, a floating green ball. Well, and that's a really good segue if you want to talk about the cyanidiales or like in the beginning, you were like chlorophyceae instead of the chlorophytes. We always call them the cyanidiophyceae instead of the cyanidiales now in our lab. But I think that's it, just a matter of which taxonomic category you're throwing them under. But to give an introduction, the cyanidiophyceae are red algae, which I will definitely talk about on another podcast episode, but they're red algae, they look green, they don't have red pigments anymore, they live often in extreme environments, and like you mentioned, they have a lot of horizontally acquired genes that encode highly adaptive, like, extreme functions like heavy metal detoxification and things like that. And the reason why I thought that was a good segue is because one of the main organisms in this group, Cynidioskyzon, which I'm sure you'll talk about, lacks a cell wall, which is really interesting. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you now. Sure. Yeah. So I came to Calston 2019 mm -hmm. and took a couple of years to get my lab started because, you know, it was a pretty eventful 2020. And then that sort of slowed down our progress here a little bit, especially in the construction of our lab. But luckily, due to Calston infrastructure and my awesome team we got up and going and since 2021 we've really been kicking off with a lot of work in chlamydomonas and now also into the cyanidiophyceae and so we're working on cyanidioskyzon marole 10d is the specific mm -hmm. strain we're working with cyanidioskyzon or c marole as we call it is a great little photosynthetic model organism much like chlamydomonas in that it is green but it's a different kind of green. It's more of a lighter sort of bluey green. And that's because it lacks chlorophyll B. It only has chlorophyll A. And it also accumulates a blue pigment phycocyanin. Mm -hmm. And so it's a red alga that looks green. And if you break it, it turns the water blue. So it's pretty yes. fun to work with. Yes. <laughs> we, we love uh, telling people about that fact. And I can say, uh, although I won't be able to show you for some time, that we've also been able to engineer this cell to produce astaxanthin. And cool. that's so now it's a, a red alga that looks green that makes a blue pigment that we made red again. So that's fun. But Cimarole is uh, really interesting because it grows at pH 2, so from pH 0 0.5 to 2, which is, for the listeners, about same acidity as Coca-Cola or lemon juice. So these organisms love growing in that, but also at high temperatures. So they're growing at 42 degrees and 42 to 56 degrees. They, they're totally happy. That's Celsius. The equivalent in Fahrenheit is about 107 to 133 degrees. And that means that not much else can grow in mm -hmm. their culture medium. So for doing biotechnology, they're really amazing organisms because when you're handling microbes, you're always worried about, is something else going to get in there? Is something else going to eat it? 
and with cyanidios on or galdiaria, we don't really worry about that. We just know that the culture is in such an extreme condition that not much else can grow in it. We don't have much contamination issues. And that, when you think about doing biotechnology with algae in general, is an exciting prospect because the end goal is to have very large cultures outdoors doing something for us using sunlight and some kind of waste product, whether it's carbon dioxide or wastewater or nitrogen, phosphorus. But the cultures have to be very big, so thousands and thousands of liters. And, you know, sterilizing that kind of volume of liquid is quite challenging. So having an organism that can grow under extreme conditions and do something for you is very exciting. And let me tell you, as somebody who grows these algae in the lab every day, it is so nice to not worry about them being contaminated. I think in like four years of growing them, I've had one culture flask that's ever been contaminated. And Or no, it was actually, it was a plate and it, it was contaminated with what I think is like aspergillus fungi. It looked disgusting. It was like black. But of, yeah, yeah, we have that too. <laughs> yeah, of hundreds and hundreds of plates and hundreds and hundreds of flasks, I've had like one have a contamination issue and when we send these things out for sequencing we don't have to worry about going back after the sequence is produced and picking out all this contamination because there really isn't any like you're totally right it's it's wonderful to work with <laughs> so we're preparing a manuscript right now because they're extreme and like the hot temperatures we're here in on the coast of the red sea mm. and you can imagine that summertime gets quite hot here and we were able to go and grow cyanidios guys on outdoors at three thousand liters in mid-August, and it was happy as can be. Wow. <laughs> it was very happy outside and growing just just uh, super well. So we're excited about using these organisms for biotechnology, especially in these sort of extreme desert environments where we can convert waste into value, uh, usually in, the ter in terms of wastewater. Yeah. That is awesome. I, I like the image that I just got in my head of like a giant pool of these growing outside um and it must... we did it in a tubular tubular photobioreactors actually and oh nice they were yeah uh, the big ones that you can imagine so for the listeners back home a photobioreactor is a fancy way of saying a big flask or a big cultivation vessel that allows light to penetrate into liquid and move around a lot of liquid so that the light can get into it so that the light can then power the algal cells to do photosynthesis. And so a tubular photobioreactor is just a, a bunch of long tubes made of glass that have algae in them. Nice. Nice. So there's all this potential with green algae, like Chlamydomonas. There's all this potential in some of the red algae, like the Cynidiophyce. Like, where where do you see this field going? Like, what are some big questions you think we're all trying to answer or are going to be answered soon in terms of what we can engineer these algae to do? That's a fantastic question. So uh, the, the real question is, why bother doing this at all? Sure, <laughs> that's, sure. That's the real question, right? And, um, and I ask that question a lot. Like every day when yeah. I'm doing work, I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> to what end? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, when I started my PhD, as I mentioned before, I got really frustrated by the narrative of if only we could do this, something good would happen. Sure. And I was really interested in understanding what that limitation was and what we could do with it. The end goal is algae convert carbon dioxide into a product, right? Yes. And so we're all concerned about carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And this seems like a natural, sustainable way to transition 
chemical production into a more circular route. So if we have carbon dioxide available as a waste product, why do we let it be a waste? Why not turn it into value? And in reality, algae are actually more vehicles of nitrogen and phosphorus conversion. So per unit, the amount of carbon dioxide that they're sequestering is quite some, you know, it's uh, when you do the math of the weight of carbon dioxide per unit of atoms and then the weight of biomass and how much carbon it is, the way to round up is always to say two to one. So you get two units of carbon dioxide into one unit of biomass. In reality, it's about 1.83 units, but you know, you can say two to one, depending on how much carbon is in the cell. But even still, even at the biggest scale possible, you're not really growing that much algae to have a massive effect on the carbon emissions that we as humans are producing. Mm -hmm. But what algae are really good at doing is taking nitrogen and phosphorus out of waters. And what human civilization does quite a lot of is make wastewater. So we make a lot of wastewater just from municipal sewage, from making beverages at the Pepsi facility or just any industrial facility usually makes a lot of wastewater. And algae are fantastic at converting the nutrients that are in that water into their biomass with CO2 as well, and then releasing clean water out of their cultivation. And so this happens when a farmer field gets flooded and all the fertilizer goes out to the sea or mm. into a lake. You get eutrophication of that lake, you get algal blooms, and that's because algae are really good at growing on waste nitrogen phosphorus. So the idea is that we want to create systems where we're taking controlled cultivation of algae as one of the vehicles to clean up wastewaters and have some kind of resource circularity in our system. Now then the real application is, in that case, we get some biomass, we get some algal biomass made, which to the listener at home would be similar to flour in your kitchen or similar to yeast that you buy at the store to bake with, some kind of powdered biomass when it's freeze dried and turned into something that we can work with. And then from there, that biomass has a bunch of chemicals in it. It has oils, starch, proteins, various specialty chemicals in its pigments. And so those are valuable in and of themselves. And then the question is, okay, we have a valuable algal biomass, but can we make that more valuable? Can we do other things with it? And so that's where I started to step in and say, okay, well, can we metabolically engineer the cell to produce specialty chemicals? And here is where we step into the realm of synthetic biology. So in synthetic biology, we look at biology as an engineerable system, a sum of component parts that we can take apart, put back together, and use as modules. And there are a lot of examples in nature of modular biochemistry. So most of the smells and the medicines and the specialty chemicals we associate with plants come from these modular pathways that stem from sort of a central common metabolic intermediate. So, you know, at our core, carbon metabolism is the same in us and a mouse and a tree at its core in terms of how we break down carbon and how carbon flows around our cell. And then individual organisms that have specialized environments have evolved to take that central chemical and turn it into something special. So one really good example that I always like to give is mint. You know, if you ever rub a mint leaf, that is a carbon chemical that has been specialized from a central intermediate. And that central intermediate is the exact same central intermediate that's used to make hormones in humans or the same central intermediate that's used to make the orange color of carrots. So it's a class of chemicals called the terpenes. Terpenes are by far the most modular and beautiful set of 
biochemical pathways in nature. They're great. They're amazing and elegant and very fun to work with as a synthetic biologist because you effectively have to simply add in different genes to get different chemical effects happening from one chemical to another. So in, in the case of mint, for example, it's one gene to make the smell of mint from central intermediates in plants and algae. But for more complicated chemicals, like there's an anti-cancer drug called paclitaxel. And paclitaxel is made from a 20-carbon central intermediate in about 14 steps or 19 steps. I can't remember exactly. But there's a lot of enzymatic steps, and most of them are not actually uh, characterized yet. So that modularity is just found all over nature. And so what you can do is take two or three genes from an organism, put them into another organism with genetic engineering and synthetic biology, and make the identical chemical from its central intermediates. And so coming back to your question of what can we do with algae, back in my PhD, I started asking, well, can we do this with algae? We have yet to be able to really express genes in chlamydomonas in a way that is enough to actually get this catalytic effect to happen. And that kind of stems from this um, viral defense mechanism that we talked about a while ago. And so my solution to this at the time was to take what was known, and it had been shown that if you put an intron into a transgene, you could get higher level expression from that gene if you put it into the organism. And so I, I started looking at the genome, and then I saw that in chlamydomonas, every gene had, on average, about six introns. And the distance between each intron was actually very small. And so in humans, it's the same way. There's more introns in the genome than actually coding sequences. And so for the readers or the listeners at home, an intron is a part of a gene that is there for regulation, but it's not actually part of what becomes the protein. And so it's a very important regulatory element in what we call genetic architecture, so the structure of a gene, but it's not responsible for making the protein in the end. And so it turns out in green algae that these are very, very important for getting genes that you want to express to express. And we figured out a design principle and a lot of trial and error together with Dr. Thomas Beyer, who I worked with very heavily back in my PhD and postdoc time in Bielefeld in Olaf Cruz's group. And we figured out a rule set for how to do this in chlamydomonas. So from that rule set, we then were able to kind of overnight go from not really being able to express these genes from other organisms in the alga to really getting high level expression from the algal nuclear genome. And all of a sudden, what that meant was that we could start doing trial and error. We could start expressing plant pathways in the algal cell. Now, the algal cell is a really good vehicle to convert carbon dioxide, nitrogen, phosphorus into its biomass, or now, in our case, the specialty products that we want to make. So we're starting to try metabolic engineering to make different terpene products. And one example that we did quite a lot of work on was the perfume patchouli, or the, the terpene product patchouli alcohol, which is the active smell in patchouli perfume mm -hmm. or patchouli essential oil. So we engineered the cell to make this. And the first time we did it, it was one of those brief eureka moments that you get so all, all too infrequently in your career because I opened the plate to look under the microscope at it and you could smell the perfume already. Oh wow. And so I ran around I ran around the lab like 
putting my plate in people's face and telling them, smell my algae, smell my algae. And uh, <laughs> the whole lab got very excited about it for a while. So that, that was very cool. And it, we've kept that kind of work going until this day. So we produce a lot of different terpenes and work in Olaf's lab back in Bielefeld is still going on in those products. And in my lab here, we kept some of that work going, but to understand a little bit more about how carbon flows. And so the goal is to see how much can we get of each one of these? And does it actually make sense, right? So if you're producing a lot of algal biomass from waste products, that's great. It's free biomass. But if you're only getting a little bit of a specialty product, that, you know, it's not that exciting because you can do the same sort of thing with yeast. And so we look at trying to increase the amounts that we're getting. We look at trying to make the cell be more levels of value than just one product. And so in the same cell that we're making a perfume, we're also making a specialty pigment. And we're also making a volatile product that can be used to make, for example, rubber tires. And we're trying to just put multiple layers of value in that one cell system. And so the reason that we're transitioning from a lot of work in chlamydomonas, the green algae that I've just been spending a lot of time talking to you about, to the cyanidio alleys and cyanidio skyzon specifically, is the genome simplicity. So in chlamydomonas, you can't really say, I want to put a gene anywhere I want. It sort of goes in randomly, and then you have to find the one that, that transformant you're looking for out of a population of thousands of uh, transformants that you get from a transformation event. But with cyanidio skyzon marole, you can put a gene anywhere you want in the genome. In addition, its genetic architecture is much, much more simple than chlamydomonas. So chlamydomonas has a genome that is 126 million base yes. pairs. <laughs> Cyanidia skyzon marole has one that's 16 million base pairs. Yes. So that's a big difference. And, you know, as a synthetic biologist, it's always our big picture goal to have an organism that we completely understand and completely can, can control. So the long-term goal for us is actually to replace the genome of cyanidioscazamarole with a synthetic version that's been redesigned to be exactly what we want it to be. And it's a perfect starting point for that. Comitomotus will always be a big part of our lab because it's been our workhorse for so many years. And now we're transitioning into doing a similar kind of work, but also more advanced synthetic biology in, the, in these extremophile red out. And I will say that both organisms have different value in terms of the applications you can do with them. So if you think about wastewater treatment, it may be a little bit challenging to acidify millions and millions of liters of wastewater and then bring it back to a neutral pH that you can then, you know, drink again later. So cultivating cyanidiales in wastewaters will be sort of dependent on technological advancements that would allow that kind of pH shift at scale or have very specific wastewater treatment that's already acidified, right? So maybe beverage industry, maybe olive oil, mill, wastewater, mm -hmm. maybe something that we don't even know of yet. And chlamydomonas is great because it grows in neutral pH, which most wastewater already is. So we just published a paper right before uh, the December break where we showed that our engineered chlamydomonas that produces this perfume product can grow directly in post-treatment municipal wastewater. And so once you treat wastewater that comes from our houses, it goes into a series of steps. And one of those steps gets rid of all the organic carbon. And then you're left with a water that's full of nitrogen and phosphorus. But it's, you know, neutral water. It's just that you can't release it into a sea or into a lake because it will make algae grow. 
And so we showed that without any sterilization, we could take our very, very engineered strain and grow it in this uh, wastewater so that we could produce our product from free inputs and get this specialty co uh, compound out in addition to the algal biomass. So those are the kind of applications that we're, we're trying to expand, all while learning about how the cell works, what is possible with the cell, what can we expect it to do. I mean, there's a fundamental limit to how much carbon can go through a cell. There's a fundamental limit to how much nitrogen can go into a cell. And so understanding and figuring that out, that's sort of the academic side of the, the practical engineering that we do. Wow. That's a really cool project. I, I have so many thoughts. Very generally, it's crazy when you think about these tiny and arguably kind of simple cells as these little machines. You can take them apart piece by piece, put them together piece by piece, and get them to do something you want them to do. I also... <laughs> To like go back to the beginning of everything you were saying, I was I wanted to point out that I'm drinking mint tea. And <laughs> when you were saying you were making people smell your plate of algae, usually plates of algae smell really disgusting. So I think that's that's very cool that <laughs> you were able to get it to produce a nice smell. Um, and that I mean, it depends, right? <laughs> like Chlamydomonas, when it's in its healthy phase, it smells like grass. But when it gets old, it starts to smell like feet. And we see Marole smells kind of like um, like grassy milk when it's growing really well in our lab. I mean, it, it almost has like a lactose sort of smell. I don't know. I have a few strains of Cimarole and Cynidiococcus and stuff like that growing in our lab. And then I have a lot of strains of Galdieria. I have one that I work with a lot on a lot of different projects. It smells so bad. The other ones don't smell much. But this one smells so bad. I don't know why. I mean, yet to be determined. I'm sure there's some sort of, maybe it's a really interesting compound that someone wants to study and that's why it's smelling so bad. But um, horrible. I open up one of those flasks and I'm like gagging. It's, it's really nasty. But <laughs> but anyway, to get are back. You sure you, yeah. Are you sure there's no bacterial contamination? Yeah, 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 like... yeah. They all smell. They've all always smelled. Okay. I've, I've plated them. Huh. Nothing else grows. I've I've yeah. isolated single colonies from plates and put them into flasks. It just always smells pretty bad. Um, wow. Yeah, okay. I, I don't know why. The other ones aren't aren't too bad. I and I was worried. I checked for contamination. I was like, something's growing in here, but I don't I don't think so. The cultures yeah. look pretty good. It must have a very active uh, fermentation pathway. It must be like turning over its internal starch or something into like formate or something like that. But yeah, maybe. There's a lot of fishy algal smells out there, right? So it really depends. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked what you were saying much earlier about Cynidios guys on turning the water blue when it bursts open because I've worked with that quite a bit. And in the freezer, like when you flash freeze some of those cells and put them in tubes in the freezer, you know, I think just the damage from freezing to the cell bursts them open and my tubes are bright blue, um, which I always, that's always fun to find. Um, but anyway, Doesn't back, that mean yeah. that, that should mean that they're mostly dead, right? Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah. what you're going for? Yeah. 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 That's, that is what I'm going okay. for. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I do this before. It's a we, lysis step. Yeah, before we extract <laughs> okay. them, we want them to lyse and then we mash them up and then we get the DNA and RNA. But 
Anyway, understood. Understood. Yeah. yeah. So what you were saying, I think this is all so fascinating. There's so many applications and it sounds like there's a lot of room to even, you know, work with different types of algae at once and create these systems that that do something for us, do something for humanity that is, you know, more sustainable than what what's currently being done. As someone who's very partial to algae, I think it's it's really nice that so many people are working on using algae in these applications. You know, to to your previous point, we are we're heavily supporting a project uh, here by the Ministry of Environment, Water, and Agriculture, which has been a cows now for about a year and a half, and their goal is to scale up algal production in the kingdom. Uh, so we call it Saudi Arabia the kingdom affectionately here. And so the idea is that uh, there's a, somebody running it named Dr. Claudio Fuentes Grunwald, who used to be in Swansea University in the UK. Mm-hmm. And they are steadily building bigger and bigger cultivation infrastructure for the production of algae on waste inputs for the purposes of making aquaculture feed. Cool. And so here we're looking at multi-trophic aquaculture because the cultivation of things like shrimp and fish produces a wastewater that's yes. rich in nitrogen and phosphorus from the waste of those organisms. And you can culture algae in that, capture all that nitrogen and phosphorus, make a protein, and then feed it to the fish and shrimp and or the shrimp larvae. And so this is becoming a very big thing here in the Middle East in general. I mean, we have a lot of unused land. We have a lot of access to the Red Sea and on the other side, the Arabian Sea. So the kingdom is pushing very heavily to grow algal technologies as part of broader goals in sustainability, right? So algae are not the the be-all and end-all of sustainability, but they're one part of the greater technology spectrum of sustainable technologies out there, right? So algae do require a lot of physical investment in infrastructure. They require a lot of energy to run algal cultivation processes, but those can be sourced sustainably from solar and wind and and, uh, hydroelectric. So there's a lot of ways in which it can be made sustainable. You have to be very careful that you're not emitting more CO2 from just bubbling gas through your cultures than you're actually consuming in the algae. But they're a very powerful, what we call waste reuse vehicle. So this is the narrative that we have around carbon reuse and waste reuse through biological systems. And so, you know, it's my goal to promote algal technologies through our lab, through my teaching here, the development of training programs for working with algal technologies, whether outside or in the lab. And then our main focus of my lab is to show what's possible with algae. So really to say, okay, in the future, what is a biorefinery with algal cultivation going to look like? Is it just going to produce one product? Can we produce a volatile product that is captured from the headspace, a lipophilic product that can be taken from the the oil fraction of the biomass, and a soluble product that comes from the aqueous phase of the biomass, and then even maybe something that's accreted into the culture medium that can also be separated as well. So having one algal strain that produces four different products makes it a much more attractive value proposition than just saying, oh, we're getting biomass out. And all the while, all of these technologies are cleaning the water that's going through the system, right? So it's one part of the sustainable technology spectrum. But yeah, we we still have a long way to go, right? And the biggest issue that we face, and this is another area that our lab actually has people working on, is... How do we design cultivation systems that work with these engineered strains and actually get the product out while you're cultivating the cells? So for the example of your mint flavor or our perfume flavor, 
you have to interact the cells with an oil layer while they're growing so that the product goes into the oil layer. Otherwise, it just accumulates in the cells and the reaction stops. So you really don't get much if you just grow cells without oil layer. But algal bioreactors are optimized to make algal biomass. They're not optimized to interact algae with oil phases. And so we have uh, shown that we can use special membrane systems. We've shown that we can use different oils that sit underneath the culture that are heavy oils instead of over top of the culture. And uh, we really are trying to come up with these new, what we call bioprocess designs that allow us to capture this value from the algae while it's doing something else that we want it to do. So that's one thing. And the, the other project that we have that I think is very exciting is bioprospecting local species. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when we're cultivating very large volumes of culture outdoors in, in, in bioreactors that are some kind of waste uh, reuse system, we don't want to be using imported species. We want to only work with things that come from this environment. That has twofold value. One, we're not introducing some foreign species into the environment if it leaks. And two, it's capable of handling the extremes of heat and weather that we and light intensity that we have in this unique locale. So uh, we're working here on this, and we also work together with uh, the team at the Arizona Center for Algal Technology and Innovation, Professor Peter Lammers and Dr. Mark Sager there. I know in them. Yeah. Both the yeah, you know them in Cyanidiales Engineering as well as uh, Bioprospecting. So um, we're, we're very close collaborators with them. Cool. That's great. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And they also, in, over in Arizona, have a lot of highlight areas that I, I could see why you guys link up. I did have one more question I was going to ask, which was that you mentioned you're originally from Canada and then you were in Germany. And I was wondering, like, I've never been to the Middle East, but I've heard a lot of great things about the science going on at the universities over there. And I was just curious how that experience compares to the academic structure in North America and Western Europe. The world is changing. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know how diverse it has become and how international we all can be yeah. um, you know uh, we're very very interconnected and technologies like zoom allow us to talk across time zones pretty easily and have lots of meetings i mean most of my days are like a meeting with australia and then you know i do my work here and then a meeting with arizona and then you know it cycles like that so that almost you never have to stop working if you don't want to, which is both bad and good. But I think we're, we're becoming more and more globally connected. And in academics, that global connection allows us to sort of have a standard quality of excellence around the world in terms of new institutions that are coming out. And uh, KAUST here specifically is just an amazingly unique place. It's about 8,000 people living in a small city on the coast of the Red Sea, most of whom are um, expats from all around the world. And I think the last numbers I heard were over 110 different nationalities living wow. and working here, all with the goal of just doing science, right? Doing high-level science. So it's very unique in that our funding structure is supportive of innovation. So we have an endowment, and that 
gives us the resources that we need to do our research. And we have internal funding that we can apply for. And we're encouraged also to interact with uh, international people around the world. So compared to, I guess, North American or European research structures, we have some guaranteed funding that allows us to be a little bit more creative and adventurous than we would be if we were worried about every grant dollar mm-hmm. that was coming in. So that's one difference. The other difference is the international focus. Like we really are at the center of the world here in terms of being connected to everything, right? So uh, we have a very honest multiculturalism because people come for a short amount of time here. They're not trying to change into whatever cultural structure is prevalent here. So it's not like the U.S. where everybody eventually becomes American or Europe. The the kingdom here is actually developing in a really amazing way because of this program called Vision 2030. And the idea is that the kingdom is developing in a very rapid way towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And so you see a massive openness, you see a massive investment in sustainability uh, in terms of the efforts that are put into research in the topics that we do. It's, it's just incredible. And so what we're trying to do is use these resources to show what's possible with algal technologies and really capture this moment where we, we have the ability to try things that we might not otherwise be able to try. Well, it's good to hear that someone's working on it. I'm sure there's pros and cons of working in the U.S. versus working in Saudi Arabia, but I will say I do not think that the U.S. takes sustainable goals very seriously. So it's it's nice to hear that someone somewhere is taking it seriously. I mean, I can't really speak to that. I know the guys at uh, ASCADI are very interested in sustainable development and they're part of the School of Sustainability and the oh, I mean, scientists uh, built environment. Are. I was like, scientists yes, are. No. I mean, people funding the science are not. That, that's where Absolutely. I was going that. I mean, <laughs> it, it looks like the Biden administration is really serious about bioproduction these days and investing in that. So that's exciting. And, I, you know, you never know where it's going to go. Sure. But, yeah. Okay. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If listeners want to follow you or your work, where can they find you on online, on social media? At least until it is totally uh, broken. I'm still on Twitter, and that's my main social media outlet. Uh, we have a lab website, which you can uh, Google and find. And yeah, I would say Twitter or just reach out by email. Those are the best ways to get in touch. Great. I'll, I'll link both of those in the show notes. Thanks. Thanks for coming on today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Kyle discussed a lot in this episode. I can't believe he's involved in so many projects, and I'm excited to see what work his lab continues to produce. Just like in the last week's episode with debashish and glaucophytes, I find it so interesting that Kyle mentions throughout how the tools we have to study organisms have changed so much in the last decade or so. He mentions his work from 2011, and last week, Debashish mentioned studies from 2012, and they both talk about how they did what they could at the time with what they had. But now science and technology, especially with respect to genome sequencing and genetic engineering techniques, have gotten so much better. I wonder where things will be in another 10 years. I just want to say that I'm completely losing my voice, which is why the intro and this wrapping up part, I might be very quiet. So sorry if I sound unenthusiastic this week. I just want to add that there will not be an episode out next week, but starting the following week, it should be back to a weekly schedule. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Peniches. For more information on microbes of the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day.